You ever, uh, you ever feel like forgiveness with some people is just not possible? Like you just can't forgive somebody for something? Someone's sinned against you too many times. They just don't seem to change. They ask for forgiveness. They say they're going to turn their life around, but it's, it's just the same thing over and over again. And you ask yourself, can I forgive this person? Should I forgive this person? Scripture is pretty clear on this. And I think you already know the answer. But my hope today is that you'll be encouraged to follow the command to forgive. And that you'll be ready to forgive when someone sins against you. Because it's not an if, but when. Someone is going to sin against you. It's going to happen. So we must be ready to forgive. So let's pray and then we'll get into our text. God, we thank you for the scriptures, for your word. It gives us everything that we need for life and godliness. It builds us up. It corrects us and helps us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that your word would be active and your spirit would be active in this place today. Help us to understand the truths that are in your word. Challenge us by these truths and shape us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning we're in Luke chapter 17. It was a passage that was read this morning. We're focusing primarily on verses 1 to 4. And we'll be looking at uh, some, some different words that occur here, doing some word studies and looking at some Greek grammar. And it's all for the purpose, really, of, of helping us to understand what Jesus is really saying to us in this text. So he starts this passage in verse 1, and he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And the idea that, that the Lord means to convey here is that it is impossible to avoid temptation in this life. There are temptations all around us in this world that we face every day. The temptation to sin is inevitable. And so, because the temptation to sin is inevitable, people are going to be tempted to sin, and people are going to sin. Sin exists in this world, and so people are going to sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we should sin, or that we should entertain temptations. Because by God's grace, those of us who have been justified and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have the ability in Christ to not sin. But temptation is everywhere, so we're going to experience it. No one is excluded from being tempted. Jesus himself was tempted in every way, just as we are. But he was without sin, because the temptation to sin is not the same thing as sinning. So what Jesus is saying here is, is simply temptations exist in this world and people are going to be led to sin. Sinners are going to sin. Jesus knows that. He's not ignorant of the fact that people are going to sin. That's why he came into this world because we are sinners in need of a savior. Now the word that he uses here for temptations is the Greek word skandalizo. It's where we get our English word scandal from. And a scandal is a word that we use when somebody goes outside of the moral or uh, legal, uh, things that are morally or legally acceptable in society. And it's usually something that happens that is damaging to somebody's reputation and is very hard to recover from. 
And the word skandalizo, it literally means a trap stick or a trigger, uh, a snare. It's a movable stick. It's a, it's a trap. It conveys the idea of an obstacle that is uh, placed in somebody's way or a trap that is placed in somebody's way, perhaps intentionally causing them to stumble or to fall. Maybe your translation says a stumbling block. It's a rock that is placed in somebody's way to cause them to stumble. It is the cause of somebody's ruin. And in this world, there are things that can trip us up. There are traps, temptations. There are situations, places, ideas, things that if we are not careful can cause us to sin. And while it's, it's bad enough if we're the ones caught in a trap, it's even worse if we are the ones setting the trap. Look what Jesus says here. Again, verse 1. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Jesus is saying there are traps in this world. Things that will cause people to sin. People are going to take the bait. But woe to you if you are the one that is causing someone to sin. If you are the one that is baiting the trap to ensnare them. Don't be the one laying the trap for your brother or sister. And so Jesus is giving a warning to the one who causes someone else to trip up or to get get caught in a trap. Woe to the one who causes someone else to sin. It's a very serious thing to lead somebody astray, to lead somebody into sin. And Jesus possibly has the, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders in mind here. Since his teachings in the previous chapters, parables were directed at them. Jesus had pronounced woes upon the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 because of their hypocritical teachings that would lead other people astray. He says in Matthew 23, verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, a convert to Judaism. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Those who knew the scriptures, those who were teaching the scriptures, were the ones leading others astray, setting traps for them with their hypocrisy, with their legalism, with their love of money, their love of power, leading others to sin. Leading others astray is something that the Lord takes so seriously. It is so severe. It is such a major offense to God. It's so bad that Jesus said it would be better for the one who leads somebody astray to drown in the sea. In fact, he says here in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. A millstone was a, a large, heavy, flat, round stone that was used to grind grain. You see a picture there. Uh, a large stone would be connected to an animal like an ox or possibly a donkey. And that animal would walk in a circle and would cause the grain to be crushed as the stone rolled. And, and these millstones would have weighed hundreds of pounds. We would need our baptism lid team to actually move these millstones. So to have one of these stones tied around your neck, just imagine if you could, and be dumped into the sea, you're instantly plummeting leagues below the surface. No way to swim back to the top. The rope is likely strangling you, like it makes a difference because you're underwater. You can't breathe anyway. You can't scream for help. You're completely alone. If you ask me, there are, there are very few more horrifying ways to die than this. Yet it is still better 
than having to face the almighty, righteous, holy, and just God if you lead one of his children into sin. God hates sin. We know that. But how much does he hate it when his people are led astray? Revelation 20 tells us the destiny for the one who deceives and leads God's people astray. It is the lake of fire and sulfur where there is torment day and night forever and ever. There is no hope of death to escape it. Do not put your God to the test on this one. And so that's why Jesus says to his disciples in verse 3, pay attention to yourselves. Make sure that you are not the one that is setting the trap for your brother or sister. Do not cause one of these little ones to sin. So who are these little ones? Because it's not necessarily children. Jesus is speaking here to his apostles, and it seems that he's referring to the other followers who are actually standing there with him, other disciples. Along with the the apostles, there were new disciples, new converts, uh, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, those who the the Pharisees and the scribes would have disregarded or who would have sought to uh, make a proselyte who would become twice as much a child of hell as they were. These were people that were new to the faith. For us, it would be those who know maybe just the basics of salvation. Those who are still vulnerable to deception and can easily be led astray by those who would seem to be more mature in the faith. By those who have a greater understanding of scripture and theological manner. So Jesus is using uh, this language here that indicates a spiritual newness. For, the, for us, it would be those who were born again recently. Children are very trusting in nature. I, I have five kids myself. <laughs> I had to do the math for a second. They're very trusting in nature. So those of us who are older, those who are more mature and have gained influence over children, parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, teachers, we have a great responsibility to children to prove our trustworthiness. So speaking spiritually, those of us who know the scriptures— who have walked with the Lord for decades, who have been called to make disciples and model Christ's likeness to younger believers, Jesus is holding us accountable. Pay attention to yourselves to make sure that temptations to sin are not coming through you, through your words, through your actions, through your attitudes. And if your brother sins, rebuke him. Temptation to sin is inevitable. Sin is something that is bound to happen. But again, Jesus says in verse 3, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Even if we are leading a model Christian life, we're allowing the Spirit to work through us, and we are in line with his will, and we're, we're a good example for younger believers, they could still sin. And if we see them sinning and we don't address it, then we are just as guilty. It's as if we are participating in the sin ourselves. You have to call attention to the sin if you see a brother or sister sinning. Those among us who are more mature spiritually, if we see somebody sinning and we don't say anything about it, then we are communicating to them that Christ is okay with that sin. And even worse, we're we're telling them that the church is tolerant, tolerant of that sin and it's okay to participate in that sin within the body of Christ. And when we do that, we're setting a trap for them to fall into. Because we're not letting them know that they are already caught in a trap. Don't lead somebody astray by not calling attention to their sin. So how do we respond if somebody else sins? Jesus says, rebuke them. 
Rebuking them is the opposite of leading someone astray. As followers of Christ, we have a responsibility to one another when, when someone is in danger of falling into a trap to let them know. We have the responsibility to rebuke those who are ensnared by sin. Rebuking them means that we let them know that they have done something that God does not approve of. Now, before we get carried away, let's look at the context because Jesus isn't calling us to just start handing out rebukes to every single person for every, every, every sin that they commit, for every minor aggravation that they call, cause you. Can you imagine how that would look on a Sunday morning? Right? We get done with that first song. Pastor Carl's like, all right, well, uh, it's good to be here in the house of the Lord. So just, just take a minute before you're seated and, and just let the people around you know how much they offended you this week. Just, just tell somebody what, what a wretched sinner they are. Jesus, he's speaking here in terms of our witness as disciple makers. It, it's not about just pointing out every sin and, and being judgmental. It's not the rebuke of every single sin that somebody commits. But if you see somebody sinning, especially if that sin is something that's going to lead others astray, if your brother or sister is is possibly setting a trap for someone else to stumble, yourself included, if somebody is a a follower of Christ, they, they profess Christ as Savior, and they're saying or doing something that would defame the name of Christ, then you owe it to your brother or sister to rebuke them. You owe it to them to let them know that they are sinning. But rebuking a fellow believer is something that must be done in love, and it's something that we do for the purpose of restoration. The Greek word that is used here for rebuke is the word epitomao, and it's a combination of two Greek words. Epi means uh, upon something or over something, and tomao is the word for honor. So when we bring a rebuke to somebody— We should be doing it in an honorable way, a way that honors them, that doesn't rob them of their dignity. Uh, A rebuke requires care. It's not about belittling somebody. It's not about making them feel guilty. It's not about trying to convict them because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. If they are convicted, that is the Holy Spirit convicting them. The role of the rebuker is to confront the person that sinned in a way that honors them. And so it should be done with humility in a way that demonstrates love and servanthood. You should count the sinner as more significant than the one who is actually doing the confronting. And and Scripture gives us wisdom on how we can do this in a way that is honorable and respectful, uh, because if if we are to be spiritually mature disciple-makers, we want to confront somebody, we want to rebuke them in a way that honors and respects them. So I just have three quick steps for uh, respectful rebukes. Uh, as we uh, seek to approach people with grace and humility. We see in Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The first step is to check yourself. Jesus tells us again in Luke 6, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck that is in your eye when you yourself don't see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. You've got to make sure that you're not going to somebody with a rebuke for the same thing that you're guilty of or calling out somebody else's sin when your sin is far more damaging to others. Like Jesus said, pay attention to yourself. 
You need to be spiritually equipped to confront the sinner. If there is something that you're struggling with, a sin you're struggling with, don't go to rebuke somebody until you've dealt with your own sin. Once you remove that log from your eye, then you can see clearly. Once you've removed that log and have allowed God to lead you to repentance and restoration from that sin, then you should be able to rebuke and help restore somebody. Step two, one-on-one. When you're spiritually prepared to make that rebuke, start with a one-on-one interaction. Look at the words of Jesus in Matthew 18. He says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. If your brother or sister sins, don't, don't go after them with a mob carrying pitchforks and torches and a battering ram to knock down the door. You should be able to confront them one-on-one. Men, you should be able to go to your brother on your own. Women, you should be able to go to a sister on your own. And you do that as brothers and sisters, not as adversaries, because the sin ultimately is not against us. We do that with a spirit of humility and gentleness. Can I speak to you for a second? Uh, I'm having just some trouble with something that I noticed, and, and I just wanted to ask you about it. And give them a chance to explain themselves one-on-one. Now, it helps greatly, practically speaking, if you have a, a, an existing relationship with that person. But you have to go to them one-on-one. Look again at Matthew 18. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Jesus says if they don't listen then take one or two witnesses. And I'm not going to get into the whole uh, passage of Matthew 18 and talk about church discipline here. But I, I want to point out from this passage that it shows us, first of all, that you should have evidence. Second of all, you should have that evidence because you are one of the witnesses. Take one or two witnesses along with you so that there are two or three witnesses. So you should be counting yourself as one of the witnesses of that sin. Don't go confront somebody about their sin because you heard a rumor about it. You need to have evidence that they sinned. And when in doubt, you can talk to your pastors. You can let us know that you've, you've seen this thing happening, and we can give you wisdom and advice on how to confront that person in a biblical way. We're not going to do it for you. Scripture calls you to go to your brother or sister one-on-one, confront them because you have evidence that they sinned. And then step three is be direct. Leviticus 19.17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. In this passage, uh, the Hebrew word that's used here in this passage for reason frankly is the same word that's used for rebuke. In the ESV and the NIV, it's, it's reason frankly. Uh, and really, what that means is be direct. Be direct. Uh, the New Tri- Living Translation says, Confront people directly, so that you will not be guilty of their sin. We've, we've talked about this. If you see somebody sinning, don't not tell them about their sin. That's setting a trap for them by allowing them to continue to sin. And it's also setting a trap for yourself by holding on to that sin. They might do more damage to other people and cause more people to sin. Or if it's a sin that's against you, you can build up anger and resentment and bitterness. Be direct. Don't beat around the bush. 
Don't be fearful or timid. Just reason frankly with your neighbor. Be open. Speak plainly to them. Tell them how they have sinned. And then once you state your case, don't be repetitive and keep trying to explain to them how they've sinned. Once they get it, let the Spirit work. And also, and this is not a minor point, let the Word of God work. Use Scripture when you're confronting somebody with a rebuke. Don't be legalistic, but show them from the Word how they have fallen short. How their actions don't seem to be lining up with Scripture. And, and give them the benefit of the, of the doubt in that. Help them to understand, because maybe they don't. Maybe they don't know that it was a sin. Help them to understand the seriousness of their sin from Scripture. And then show them from the Word how to live in a way that honors God. Show them the way of the repentance. And when you have done these things, hopefully they will listen to you and they will repent. And Jesus says in verse 3, if he repents, forgive him. That is the hope and that is the goal of the confrontation. Repentance and forgiveness. To repent is a word that means to turn back. Uh, Some of the words in Greek and Hebrew for repentance convey the idea of a retreat, to think differently, to change one's mind for the better, or heartily to amend with abhorrence to one's past sins. It literally means to return, as if you're turning back from something that you looked away or strayed from. It's a turning away from sin and going in the opposite direction. First Timothy uh, tells us that we are to, to flee from sin and pursue righteousness, to return to God. That's what repentance is. That is what heaven rejoices over when a sinner repents, when a sinner turns away from sin and returns to God. And so if a brother or sister is confronted about their sin and they repent, what is the response? Forgiveness. Unless a rebuke is connected to forgiveness, unless we are open and willing to forgive, then that rebuke is not going to be helpful for anyone. Jesus tells his disciples that if the person repents, the rebuker must forgive. The person that you're confronting needs to be reminded that there is grace, that there is hope. If we're going to bring a rebuke to somebody, if we're going to confront them about their sin, we must be open. No. We must be ready to forgive. We must be ready in our heart to forgive them before they repent, before they ask for forgiveness. Because when we rebuke somebody, the hope is that there will be repentance, and if there is repentance, there must be forgiveness. You look at the word forgive, and what does that mean? In English, according to Webster, is to stop feeling anger towards somebody who has done something wrong or to stop blaming someone. In the Greek, there are four words, and in the Hebrew, there are four words that can be translated as forgive. And the word that we see here in this passage is the Greek word aphiemi, and it carries a meaning of sending away or letting go or to omit and leave behind. And that's what God does with our sin. Amen? In Christ, he has sent our sins away. Micah 7.19 says that God will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins. He will send them away to the depths of the sea. Hebrews 8.12 says that God will remember our sins no more. Now, that doesn't mean that the omniscient God forgets 
the sins that we committed. It means that he leaves them behind. He will never hold those sins against us again because we have been justified. So that is how God views forgiveness. And Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we are to be kind and compassionate, tenderhearted to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ, God has forgiven us. God is our example for forgiveness. He does not hold our sins against us because they've been paid for on the cross. God says he will remember our sins no more. And when God says that he will do something or when God says he won't do something, what is that called? A promise because God doesn't lie. If he says he will remember our sins no more, that is a promise. If he says we have forgiveness because of the blood of Jesus Christ, that is a promise. Forgiveness is a promise for those who are in Christ. If you are born again, if you have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, forgiveness is a promise for past, present, and future sins. God promises not to bring it up again. And that's what forgiveness is because in the body of Christ, we are called to love one another. In 1 Corinthians 13, love does not keep a list of wrongs. We don't hold sins against one another. So we see Jesus telling his disciples here that when someone is rebuked, if they repent, we are to forgive them. And that is something that applies to every situation when somebody repents and asks for forgiveness. And the, the, some Greek grammar here, the tense voice and mood of this word for forgive is second aorist active imperative. What that means, here's what that means, basically. The way Jesus is saying this, he is expecting that you, second person, he's expecting that you will forgive right away and that you will do it completely. So when he calls us to forgive, it's something he's expecting us to do immediately and completely. So we can't get out of it when somebody sins and and they repent. We can't get out of it by saying, well, I'll try to forgive you, but I need to pray about it. That's not the more spiritual thing to do. The spiritual thing to do is to forgive them. It's not something that you learn to do over time and eventually you can forgive them. It's something that you do right away and you do it completely. Because the Lord says so. God desires reconciliation. He desires unity within the body of Christ. And he calls us to maintain peace as much as it depends on us. So forgiveness is not optional for those who are in Christ. It is a promise. Our salvation depends on forgiveness. So we must also forgive. And Jesus here in verse 4, he anticipates the what ifs and the yeah buts. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. And this statement is likely what prompted Peter to ask Jesus in Matthew 18, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Forgiving somebody uh, seven times was not customary in their culture. Teachers of the law would refer to passages, and you could just jot these down, Amos 2.4, Job 33.29, and they would use them as evidence that the limit for forgiveness was three times. And after three times, if somebody sinned against you, you were to have nothing to do with that person. 
but followers of Christ should expect to forgive more than that. And what Jesus means, as he clarifies in, in Matthew 18, 22, is not just up to seven times, but until 70 times seven. And this is a symbolical uh, expression for never-ending forgiveness. There is no limit with God's forgiveness, so there should not be a limit to our forgiveness. There is no limit to God's forgiveness because if there was, then there would be no hope for us. To forgive, last, last little uh, Greek lesson here, verse 4, th- this word is in the future tense. So that indicates that it is, it is to be a progressive and repeated aspect. Jesus' command here is to forgive often. It's not just a one-time thing. He wants us to continue to forgive no matter how many times we're sinned against. easy. And I know that there are, there are many of us who have experienced uh, ongoing and repeated sin against us, followed by repentance and opportunities to forgive, followed by sin again in, in various relationships. We have the spouse who keeps lying. We have the, the child that continues to steal money. We have the parent that lets us down constantly, the friend that talks behind our back. And this is just the surface, I'm sure, for a lot of us. But we must forgive every time. So we can't say to somebody on the eighth time, you lied to me before and I forgave you, but this time I'm putting my foot down. I'm not going to be lied to anymore and you will not learn your lesson if I just forgive you again. We must forgive. And we don't use it against them. We don't bring it up. We don't say, well, what a surprise, you did it again. I forgave you last time and here you are again, sinning against me. We cast it away. And I know, again, this is, not, this is not like an easy command to follow. I know there are hurts in this room. I know somebody here is thinking, you don't understand what this person did to me. But do you understand what your sins did to the Son of God? I know it's hard to do, and we have a thousand reasons why we can't just forgive somebody. But how often do we, do we sin against God and repent and trust in faith that we have his forgiveness? Every time, right? We know that we have his forgiveness every time we sin. It's promised. Our salvation depends on it. And so every time we, we think that thought, we say those words, we act pridefully, we covet something that's not ours, every time we commit that sin, even after we've done it a hundred times, we promised 101 times that this was the last time, and we repent and we return to God, who knows we're going to do it a hundred more times, we still have his forgiveness. We can depend on his kindness and mercy every time. And so when someone sins against a disciple of the Lord, they should be able to count on us to forgive every time. And we live in a world that is offended by everything, that demands justice and repentance does not offer forgiveness. Don't be like the world. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't have discernment and wisdom, 
And if you're in a situation where you're, you're being abused or you're being taken advantage of, that doesn't mean that you don't set up boundaries. That doesn't mean that there are not consequences for sins. You shouldn't be in a situation where you anticipate being wrongfully taken advantage of or where you're not safe. But you still must be ready to forgive. And if, if the offender is continually caught in the same trap, do what you can to help them, to restore them. And sometimes that means separating physically from that person. Sometimes it means calling the police. But you have to forgive them and show them what repentance looks like. And our church is here to be a resource to help in those situations. Forgive. And then see how that person can be served so that they can be restored. And again, this requires humility. It requires vulnerability. And it means that you need to consider others more significant than yourself. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant. I'm not going to read the whole passage. But we are to have the same mindset that he had, to take on the form of a servant, to consider others more important than ourselves. And when we choose not to forgive somebody, we are saying that we are in a superior position to them. When somebody sins against us, we can't hold it over their heads. We can't rub it in their face. We can't hold grudges. We can't send people on a guilt trip. That's not humility. That's not servanthood. That's not how a disciple of Christ lives. That is not true forgiveness. And again, this is... This is difficult for us to grasp. It's, it's counterintuitive, really, to how we would like to respond. And it almost seems impossible. And that's why the apostles say in verse 5, increase our faith. Forgive somebody up to seven times. We're going to need some big faith to be able to do that, Jesus. But Jesus tells them that they don't need a greater amount of faith. If you had faith like the grain of a mustard seed... You could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Faith the size of a mustard seed could uproot a tree and plant it in the sea. You don't need a greater amount of faith, Jesus is saying. You just need faith in a great God. Forgiveness requires faith. But not a greater faith, only a genuine faith in the great God who offers forgiveness. He is the one who forgives. He is the one that gives us the grace that we need to forgive others. He has forgiven us. He, and, and ultimately, all sins that are committed are against him. And your brother or sister, if they were a believer and you've rebuked them, they already have forgiveness in Christ. They don't need your forgiveness. So we must have faith in God that he knows what he's doing. When he tells us to forgive every time, immediately, completely, we need to trust his word. Because if, if a brother or, or sister sins against us, again, that sin in Christ has already been forgiven. If we trust that God will give us the ability to keep this command, and if we do what is commanded in this passage, 
then it's going to radically impact our relationships. Genuine forgiveness requires genuine faith, and it requires us being totally dependent on God and having a willingness to do what he is calling us to do. No matter what the sin is, no matter how someone has offended us, hurt us, no matter how many times, if we have received forgiveness from God, if we have the faith that we have been justified, that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been forgiven because the Son of God shed his blood to redeem us, to forgive us fully, completely, and for eternity, then forgiveness is the right and it is the only response from those who have themselves been forgiven. If God is present, we can trust in his power to work through us to forgive others. Even, even the smallest amount of faith is enough for God to use to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation if that faith is in God. No one is exempt from being forgiven. No sin is exempt from being forgiven. Just like no one is exempt from being tempted to sin in this life. When we are tempted, God will provide a way of escape. He tells us that. But even when he leads us away from temptation, sin is still inevitable. People are still going to sin. And it's something that we're all going to encounter until Christ's return. And knowing that, we must be prepared for people to sin against us. Because it's going to happen. And when it does, as followers of Christ, we need to be ready to forgive. Don't be tempted to sin yourselves. Don't be prideful and angry and arrogant and bitter and resentful. But be full of mercy. Because we have a great high priest who was also tempted in every way, but was without sin. And because of that, we can draw near to him to receive mercy and find grace and trust that we have forgiveness when we need it, which is often. We fall short of his commands. We sin. Well, I don't know about all of you. I sin every day. And if God did not show us mercy, we would not have forgiveness. Imitate him and be willing to show mercy and grace to others. No matter how many times they sin against you, no matter how great the sin is, forgive others as you have been forgiven. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, all those who believe that you have raised him from the dead, that confess him as Lord, have forgiveness. And our sins are great. We've sinned against a holy and sinless and righteous God. We deserve no place with you. We broke the relationship, but you sent your son to restore that relationship, to reconcile us to you. It's through him that we have forgiveness. And we just think about him being nailed to that cross, crown of thorns upon his head. He committed no sin, but he bore the weight of our sins 
so that we could be made righteous, that we would be justified, that we could be forgiven. So I pray that as we have been forgiven, as your word tells us, give us the, the, the faith to do what you are calling us to do, to forgive others when they sin against us. We know it's not easy, but we know that nothing is impossible with you. And so help us to trust you to forgive. Help us to be examples of love and grace and mercy to all those who offend us, who sin against us, because ultimately we know those sins are against you. We know that there is no sin that you can't forgive through your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, help us to forgive. In Christ's name I pray, amen.